Thank you. We got talking this week to say, you know, we pray at the beginning of the service. We pray over the offering. We have other prayers. How about if we take time just to pray over the message, you know, that the preacher will do a better job, that you'll do a better job listening, that uh, between us we'll, we'll hear from God and uh, uh, we will respond as a fully devoted follower should. So in Matthew 18, the big idea we're talking about is Jesus is talking about how do you achieve greatness, and uh, it's backwards than you might think. Basically, Jesus says you descend into greatness. And uh, we're looking at this discourse of what it's talking about to be a servant of uh, the Savior, the Messiah. So uh, if you look at Matthew 18, verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if this one little verse was the only part of the Bible that you had, or the only part of Matthew that yet, I mean, there, there's kind of a surface reading. What's the answer to the question? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Come on, you, if you went to Sunday school, you know the answer to about every question is Jesus, and uh, this would be one of those, right? So try it again. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Very good. Okay, now you know in case anybody asks you. But I think Matthew actually scrubbed this one a little bit, you know, washed behind his ears, got dressed him up a bit, got it ready to be presentable to, uh, to company because Matthew was one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. He had actually been a tax collector of all things and uh, despised by everybody else because uh, tax collectors were uh, famous or infamous for gouging people and taking more than they should have. And so he's given credit of writing one of the biographies of Jesus. It has, bears Matthew's name, even though Jesus is the star character in the book. It's called Matthew. And uh, so... <clears throat> This same story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptics, which are very similar to each other. In fact, if you had all three boys in your class, if you were a teacher, you'd sit them all down and say, I'm going to fail all of you tell you, tell me who copied whose paper, because whole paragraphs are the same. And the storyline is often the same, and they're kind of tracking together. I think John was a musician, because he's kind of, ooh, he's over here. You know, and they're all three telling the very similar story. And so... Um, when you look at this story, it's found in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, and they all have are happening with the sequences that have been happening. The things we've been looking at in Matthew have been happening in the other two. And so, when you look at Luke, this story is actually of the disciples wanting, of arguing over who's going to be the greatest, happens twice. Slow learners. It's in chapter nine of Matthew or Luke, and it's also in Luke chapter twenty-two. Ironically, of all places, it's at the Last Supper. Jesus is—they've already had dinner. He's serving the the bro, his broken body and the 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 cup, and he says, "You know, some of you will betray me." And they begin to ask, not questioning, "Lord, is it I?" They're, they begin to say, "Well, who who could it be?" Let's see. Wouldn't be him. He's pretty important. That wouldn't be that one. He's very important. Well, that one, he's not quite as important as I am. And they get into this discussion, arguing of who he's going to be the greatest on the last night of Jesus' life. And the second time, Jesus had already corrected them earlier in his ministry, which is recorded here in Matthew 18 and in Luke 9 and in Mark chapter 9. So I actually wanted to look at Mark because he gives us a little different view than Matthew does. You remember that Jesus had just healed this boy that the disciples could not heal. He had a demon and he had something, he would have fits like epilepsy. And Jesus healed his body and also cast the demon out of him. And in verse 28 of Mark 9, it's just the next book over if you track it in your own Bible. Mark 9, 28, Jesus, it says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, well, this kind come out only by prayer. <laughs> in other words... Your prayer life has kind of been slipping, and uh, you thought you were faking it and fooling everybody, but 
you didn't have the power that you needed when you needed it. It says they left that place and they passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples, which he's basically preparing them for the suffering that is ahead. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that after Jesus has done these great big, this great big miracle, and he's had, you know, he comes, says to them, I'm headed to Jerusalem to die. They all think he's on a trajectory to just get stronger and more popular and gather an army and toss out the Romans and have their country back and live happily ever after. And they're going to be the ones in his court. They're going to be the important ones surrounding him. And instead, he keeps saying this that they don't understand. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days, he will rise from the dead. But they did not understand what he meant. They were afraid to ask him about it. So there's this gap in the story. At that point, there's some travel time. And then verse 33 says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? So here he had said, We're headed to Jerusalem for me to suffer and die. They're wondering about that. They're afraid to ask him. So instead, in the back of the bus, they start their own conversation. Well, let's see. If Jesus goes and dies, who's going to be running this kingdom of God kind of thing? Who's going to be in charge? Well, who should it be? And greatness is on their minds. It says they kept quiet because they'd been arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest. They get in an argument trying to figure out who's the greatest of the disciples. And we don't know how it got started, but you could guess. I mean, if you go back to Matthew now, and we look just at kind of a Matthew's account, and Matthew 16 is really the turning point of the whole book of Matthew. Because Jesus has been doing his miracles, he's been doing teaching, and then he says to the disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And they have different answers. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the first one to step up and answer. He said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him with all the other disciples, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he disordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Christ. Well, then it's eight days after that that he has his transfiguration experience where he took uh, Peter and James and John, left the other nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain, goes up for the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John just watched him be transfigured. It's like he was a shining star radiating. And Moses and Elijah, you know, heroes from the past showed up and are talking with Jesus while he's shining like a star. And then they come down from this unforgettable mountaintop experience and they must have just been exuding enthusiasm enthusiasm, and even though Jesus tells them, don't tell, they come back to the place where the other nine disciples aren't having nearly as much fun because they're failing at crowd control, and they're failing at the debate and defend with the Jewish scholars who've showed up, and they're failing at healing a boy who's demon-possessed, and they're wondering, where's Jesus? Thank God Jesus has arrived, because Jesus arrives and over, you know, basically solves all three of those overwhelming problems. And then he has his first private moment with the disciples. After this, guess what he says to them? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples are filled with grief. So even in Matthew, I think when you read it, you get to the point of saying, oh my goodness, this is going to be a huge transition in our life. Jesus is going to die and be gone. What's going to happen to us? 
That's immediately where we jump when there's a transition. Isn't there? Change of presidents, uh, change of pastors, change of uh, governors, change of leaders. Uh, you know, cha- things change in our family. We immediately, what's going to happen to us? And the disciples are asking that. Jesus is going to go die. Somebody's got to be in charge. Let's see who should it be. And they begin to share their strengths, each of them, and who, who they might think is average and who is superior and you know, who's just way above that. And uh, I think Peter probably, you know, Jesus said, I was the one with the keys to the kingdom. And who knows how it degenerated from there. Do you know... Uh, I have been sorting my dad's things. He went on to heaven to be with my mom in January, and so I got boxes and boxes of his paperwork that I'm working through. He um, kept some unusual things like <clears throat> he had every bulletin of every church service he ever went to, and he was a pastor. So there was, you know, there's a whole folder for 1952 and 1953 and 1954 and 1955, and then I came across one where he had all of the uh, report cards for all of his kids. And... I read everybody's, but (laughs) the ones that impressed me the most were my own because I wasn't nearly as smart as I had thought I was and didn't get nearly as good a grades as I had remembered that I had gotten. And uh, then there's a a, a kind of a summary from the principal of the boarding school. As I was leaving there, she said, Ty is really smart. He's testing two years ahead of his class on the Stanford exam, although his grades don't indicate that. And when it comes to athletics, he is very average. I thought, I didn't even ever see the woman wearing a pair of tennis shoes. How would she even know? Anyway, the pecking order, you know, it, it matters to us. This, this pecking order, it's really just pride, isn't it? It permeates everything we do. And it's astounding that these disciples are infected with this pride. Even though they're walking with Jesus, they think like the world. They're walking with Jesus every day. They're thinking like the world. Do you see a problem with that? They're walking with Jesus. They're supposed to be thinking like Jesus and asking Jesus questions and learning Jesus' values and learning Jesus' way of talking and reasoning and and responding to people and caring. They're supposed to be coming like Jesus, but they are like the world. They've just been given a test to heal and to cast out a demon, and they failed. So the undeterred, they go on to figure out which one of them should have the top spot. I don't know, somebody's F smaller than somebody else's F? You know, pride can be so obnoxious. When we were in Nigeria, my parents were missionaries, and um, Karina and I actually figured out her husband was a missionary kid in a boarding school in Africa, just 3,000 miles away from where I was a kid as a missionary kid in a boarding school. But anyway, we compared uh, those stories, and there are some similarities, and... um, Anyway, my parents had a houseworker named Musa, and he would come work at our house every day. And on one particular day, I don't know, maybe he's in a hurry, but he burned the scrambled eggs for breakfast, but he still served them. And uh, then he uh, must have got distracted. Maybe he was on his phone. Ha, they didn't have phones. He, but he ironed a hole. I mean, he, he literally burned a hole into the front of my mom's dress. You know? And then he actually had the audacity to ask her within the hour, Madam, do you like my work? which really was kind of positioning to say he was hoping to be seen as more valuable so he could ask for a pay increase. But instead she said, absolutely not. I'm so frustrated with you. I was thinking of firing you today, which then Musa showed the best wisdom he had had in the whole time. He just dropped the subject. And uh, uh, thank God for the job he had. So here are these disciples. They've been invited to learn from Jesus. 
And mostly what that's been is show up and walk along and listen and observe what Jesus does. And they've gone from a, on a one little mission tour that pushed them out two by two to go talk to people themselves. And they have been there when Jesus did a miracle and fed thousands. And so they've collected the baskets of leftovers. And, you know, three of them got to go up on the mountaintop with him and to watch uh, him be transfigured. And the others are down there kind of, you know, remedial studies, struggling along with this desperate father and his son. And they're not spiritually in tune. And so they're trying to rank themselves. And they're so foolish, and we got to be careful, though, because when we point a finger at them, we're uh, pointing three at ourselves because we have the same problem. Pecking order matters to us, not to Jesus. The other thing we see is location matters to us. Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this story is actually also found in Luke chapter 9, and Luke tells us, when they asked Jesus, who is the greatest? It says Jesus knew their thoughts. He read their minds. He knew what was happening in their heart. I mean, there's no place to hide from Jesus. He can read your mind. He can examine your soul. He can figure you out. No matter how we posture and pretend, make it look so pretty to other people on the outside, Jesus knows us on the inside. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. And so, reading his followers' motives, he calls a child to him, puts him right there in the midst. And there's something we might culturally miss here, but in their day and age, it's probably not that different from ours, but the place of honor was right next to the king, on the king's right-hand side. You're the right-hand man to the king, um, and, uh, or the monarch, and uh, emperor. And so, everybody wanted to stand there or sit there. That was the place of greatest recognition and honor and I mean, if you couldn't be the king, well, then be the right-hand person. So maybe it's not so different today because on every military base that I was on, there was a protocol officer and a protocol office. And every event that got more than three people together would be run through the protocol office to say, well, who's more important? Who's going to sit where? And uh, who should be near the front? And who's in the middle? And who's in the back? And uh, who's, you know, we don't want to exalt some too high. And so get everything just exactly right. Why? Because we think the location really matters. Well, in fact, it's, it's, it's kind of become humorous, I guess, between the two of them. But, you know, the number of things that ex-presidents and their wives get to go to um, have, have put uh, George Bush and Michelle Obama right next to each other over and over and over on the chart. I know they're from two different backgrounds and two different families and two different political parties and two different worldviews, but they sat next to each other so often that uh, George Bush just shows up with a mint for Michelle Obama every time because they, they're always seated right next to each other. And, you know, protocol and location matters. I mean, who is the greatest? And Jesus responds to this greatest debate with his followers by filling in the place of greatest greatness with a child. You go, why a child? Well, frankly, children are different than adults. I mean, young children usually aren't as concerned about greatness, about pecking order, about the money they have or don't have, about jobs or their beauty or power or position as adults. And Jesus says, unless you truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the word turn has actually been translated in this verse, unless you be converted. We understand conversion. 
I was going this direction, now I'm going this direction. I was like this, now I'm like that. I had that as a value, now I'm over here. And it's a one-way bridge into a new way of thinking, a new way of living. It's an irrevocable change. Once I was like that, but now I am like this. And Jesus knows that this problem, pride problem, is something that we all have. And you don't just accidentally grow in your pride until you reach humility. Humility, you're not going to find yourself in humility without choosing it, without being converted to say what really matters to Jesus Christ. Because to us, the pecking order and the location really matter. Not, just as long as I'm ahead of you, then I'm okay. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so what really matters to Jesus is humility. Humility matters. Look at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus adds that verbal explanation to his visual object lesson with his child right there in the place of honor. Whoever is the least among you, he's the greatest. And then he says in verse 5, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus is claiming the humble place for himself. He's identifying with the child that the way people treat children is the way they are treating Jesus. He's really trying to say to us that he, Jesus is identifying with those who are less important and unimportant. He's kind of got an upside-down approach. He's not impressed with title or with position or with fame or with fortune or with pride or with all the things that tend to impress us, which we end up collecting and hoarding like as if it were a treasure. Jesus is teaching the hierarchy of heaven. And he presents this principle that's so profound and shocking and hard for us to deal with, we're still trying to figure it out 2,000 years later. That true greatness is found in humility, in serving, in caring about others who are not as famous, not as powerful, not as impressive, not as important. I mean, as far as Jesus is concerned, the best way to the top is to scramble for the bottom, to descend into greatness. This is all written in one little passage in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, Philippians 2, I'm going to start verse 5. It's called the kenosis passage, which is off the Greek word that talks about he poured himself out. That's found in this passage. Let me read it. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What matters to Jesus? It's the attitude of our heart. He finds pride repulsive. He finds true humility very attractive. I mean, the disciples are comparing themselves not to Christ. They're comparing themselves to each other, basically willing to step on each other's head so they could be ahead in the line. They're wanting to think, somehow, if I'm more important than he is, then I'm more important. And when we compare ourselves to a brother or a sister or a, a, a fellow student or a, 
a colleague or a business associate thinking somehow that's helping us get ahead. Jesus is saying, just be humble and follow Jesus. That's what fully devoted followers do. They keep their eyes on Jesus. Humility matters to Christ. The other thing that's clear in this passage that matters to Christ is children. They matter. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, of course, this millstone is a carved stone. Uh, some of them are, you know, four or five feet and, and, and they're thick. They have a hole in the middle where you can put uh, a log that uh, then can be attached to an animal like a donkey or a mule that can then walk around and around and around the circle and you put some grain in there and you grind it into, have the ground into flour. So even the best swimmer in the world having one of these millstone that weighs several hundred pounds put around their neck and then dropped into the sea, you know you're headed to the bottom and you're going to drown. And Jesus is saying that would be a better fate than the judgment that awaits those who've caused children to move away from God rather than toward God. Children are precious to God. They are a priority to Him. I mean, Jesus said, how you treat the children is how you treat me. So let's take a moment and, re and view and uh, evaluate. How are children treated in our world? And the short answer is, we are failing. We're failing the children. I mean, if you just look at concern for the pre-born, there's about a million abortions every year in America. There's over 50 million worldwide. I mean, it's higher in developing countries. In, in America, it's 17 uh, uh, pregnancies are terminated for every thousand women who are expecting. It's the highest in the world, actually, in the Caribbean. It's 59 per 1,000 pregnancies. But the culture of death is still not satisfied. I mean, just in the last few weeks, if you've been watching the news, the debate has raged in our Congress to allow abortions all the way to the moment of birth. And they have actually uh, have voted against medically assisting a child who somehow has survived what they would call a botched abortion and manages to be alive. Now, I would encourage them, if asked, forget your constituents. You're going to look into the face of Christ. And that's the only one that matters. Now, if you look at babies that are born, the morality rates for children zero to five are also shocking and discouraging because 14 million a year don't make it to be old enough to even attend kindergarten. And the big cult culprits are diarrhea, measles, tetanus, whooping cough, and pneumonia, most of which could be solved with a $5 injection or a 50-cent antibiotic for respiratory problems. And most of these are in poorer countries. But just because they live further away from us, we don't think it matters as much. But it, does, it still matters to Jesus. 30% of the people in the world are under 15 years old. In some countries, it's actually as high as 50% are under 15 years old. And violence, as we heard from our missionary, is a major factor so suffice it to say, we're not doing very well caring for the children in our world. And when we see Jesus someday face to face and he says, what did you do? How did you care for the children? When he asks us, what were you talking about as you walked through life together? Well, what color my curtains were going to be here? 
what I was going to wear to a party. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, it seems so trivial where we spend so much of our time. He said, did you care about what I care about? So we need to have a priority on children, and we do here. At South Shores, we're building some new spaces for them. Thank you for participating in that. We've got a great staff that are reaching out to them and uh, a great team doing uh, lots of ministry with children. But there are so many children uh, that uh, are getting the benefit of that. How do we get the good news of Jesus to them? And, uh, you know, it's important that we see that they really, the little ones, Jesus said, if, if you treat them, is how you treat me. Now, Pastor John Maxwell actually did a sermon once that I listened to, and the title was, Give Up to Go Up. And he was talking about if we're going to grow up as a Christian, you know, you can get older without maturing in Christ, without becoming, you, you, even if you're reading your Bible, unless you're saying, how do, I, if I, how do I walk with Christ? How do I give up the things I need to give up so that I can actually continue to grow up in my understanding and in how I do faith? And, and, and so... We need to give up our rights and give up our preferences and give up shoving ourselves up to the front of the line and push ourselves towards humility and compassion for others and service in the name of Christ. And sometimes we get it backwards. I mean, we want everybody to be honored, but what I see Jesus saying in this is, how do you care for the children? Because how you take care of them is how you take care of me. Verse 7, he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. He says, I want you in the world, but not of the world. Kind of the opposite of where the disciples were, that they were with Jesus, but they were still mentally in the world. He says, woe, and woe is the very opposite of a blessing. And we are tempted in this world by the devil and by the world and by our own flesh. And Jesus is giving a strong warning. You will be dealing with temptations, of course, but don't you be the source of the temptations uh, to the little people around you, particularly the children, and you be the one causing them to be tempted and to fall into sin. No. You're in the world, but you belong to me. And then he says, number six, to descend into greatness. Look at verse eight. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the, the hell of fire. And, the, you know, Jesus offered this solution more than once of actually cutting off your own hands or your own feet or plucking out your own eye if it causes you to sin. And he says, it would be better for you to enter life with one eye or two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The thing that stuck out to me is when he talks about to enter life which is he's using for heaven. That the, well, where we are right now isn't the truest life. This is the warm-up. This is the dress rehearsal. This is the preparation. And, and I've never seen anybody who's plucked out their own eyes or intentionally severed off their own hand or foot uh, to avoid sin because, I mean, we know that those are not the genesis of the problem. Jesus knew that too. He knew the problem doesn't start with your eye or with your hand. It starts in your heart. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And the Bible says, blessed are those who take God's word to heart. 
that we apply it to ourselves, that we use it as a lens to get our heart in focus with God, to apply it, to be like Jesus, to practice humility, genuine humility. It basically starts with self-talk of, you know, you're probably not nearly as important as you think. Kind of like the pastor who came home and said, honey, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in the world? She said, I don't know, probably one less than you think. <laughs> it wasn't funny. <laughs> At least not the first time I heard it. <laughs> or servanthood. To serve others. Sometimes, oh, I'm too busy. Well, if you're too busy to do what Jesus did, then you're probably too busy. And it's time to make some adjustments. Or to have compassion, especially for the children. Or to choose righteous living for Jesus above all else. To, the, to do those, then, you really enter life. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, eternity in the presence of Jesus. He said it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. It's like Jesus is saying that heaven, living forever in God's presence, is, is, what, is real life. Everything else is just preparation. That this world is the practice. It's the dress rehearsal. It's the getting ready to really live. And we're invited into real life. So practice here so that you're ready for real life. And see, that doesn't come naturally to the disciples, and it doesn't come naturally to us either. It only happens when the words of Jesus are heard by us, and then we respond appropriately to say, I need to turn. I need to be converted. I need my heart to be changed, to make his priority my priority, to do what Jesus did. He chose to humble himself. He chose to submit himself to God's will in his life, whatever that would mean. He chose to serve others. He chose to give himself sacrificially. He chose to descend into greatness. And he challenges us to walk the same walk. It's a walk of faith and following Jesus. And it's the only path that leads to life that is true life. So the challenge is to walk with Jesus and descend into greatness. Challenge accepted. Let's stand and pray together, shall we? You know, if after we pray, as people are leaving, if you wanted to come down and to pray, there will be people down here to pray with you. If you need to get right with God, just come down and kneel at the foot of the cross and get right with Him. Let's pause and pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this challenge. That seems just like crabgrass, just seemed to keep coming up with the disciples. Which of us is the greatest? Rather than... How do we serve our great God and Savior with our whole heart? So I pray that we will be the people who practice that kind of thinking and who choose humility and service and compassion, especially for the children. Take us from this place touched by your word and ready to follow you, Jesus, wherever you would lead us. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go in peace.